This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 4th, 1975. A U.S. Air Force Lockheed C-5A Galaxy with 314 people on board, many of which are babies, is taking off from Tan Son Nut Air Base in South Vietnam, bound for Clark Air Base in the Philippines. The Vietnam War is in its final days, and the United States has begun a special program named Operation Baby Lift to evacuate orphans from South Vietnam to the United States, Australia, France, West Germany, and Canada. 12 minutes after takeoff, while climbing through 23,000 feet, the plane suffers from an explosive decompression and declares an emergency. The plane turns around in an attempt to return to Saigon, but the crew is having trouble controlling the aircraft. The plane becomes increasingly difficult to control as time goes on. What happened to the stricken flight? Did it manage to return to Saigon? What caused the explosive decompression? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. I'm Gus. Hello, Chris. The seatbelt light is on, so sit down, strap up, and let's find out what happened to this flight. Wow, that's that's a good little. Uh... That, that, that was a suggestion on Instagram from Mike J. He uh, he sent it in because I always <laughs> complain about I don't know how to start an episode. So thanks, Mike, for for sending in that that suggestion. Man, I'm gonna strap up Operation Baby Lift. My mouth dropped, guys. Operation Baby Lift. Have you not heard of Operation Baby Lift before? No. So. FYI, by the way, this was the first flight of Operation Baby Lift. It was like a month-long program uh-huh. to try to evacuate orphans from South Vietnam at the end of the Vietnam War. And the, this is the first flight, and something went wrong immediately. We'll talk more about this specific incident here in just a moment. Yeah, this was uh, it was a crazy time, right? I mean, the United States had been involved in Vietnam for a decade at this point, and the war was ending. You know, that was mm-hmm. it. The U.S. was done pulling out. And... Uh, you know, this is a this is a, a pretty controversial program. Uh-huh. I mean, think about it. I don't want to get like political or, yeah. or or dive into you know too much of the of the backstory here. But just from a humanitarian perspective, is it right to evacuate these children from their home country? You know, who are we to say that they'd be better off coming to a different country? And honestly, now we know after the fact, a lot of these children weren't orphans either. Oh no. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to look back on. And it's not like it's, it was clearly a good idea or clearly a bad idea. Like most things, there's a lot of nuance to it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it was the final days of the war. It was very kind of haphazardly done. I said there were 314 people on board. The truth is, we don't know exactly. There was also very poor record keeping. We, I, I can't tell you how many babies there were actually on this flight. Oh, no. Just because they were just throwing kids onto planes and taking them out of Vietnam. But the attempt was... T- humanitarian effort right like it wasn't right that was the intention behind it right it was to to take these you know what they what they thought were orphans but weren't always and take them to you know countries friendly to the united states i don't know what would have happened to these children if they were left behind you know post united states evacuation of vietnam you know would it really have been that bad i don't know i can't you know it's 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 a it's a touchy situation. I don't know that it was necessarily the right thing to do, but I don't think it was done out of malice. Uh, it's it's just a very it's a it's a complex yeah. scenario. It's a complex yeah. situation, and you know, like I said, it was the final days of the war. Things were just you know not going well for the United States and the South Vietnamese forces. Things were just kind of falling apart, and we'll 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 talk about that a bit, you know, in this episode. So mm-hmm. before we get too hard to remind people to follow us on social media. Oh, yeah. Just like you could send us a suggestion, just like Mike J for the intro. Yeah. At Black Box Down Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We check it all. You can email us at blackboxdownpod at gmail.com. 
if you have questions or what, you know, we, we released a special premium episode based on some of the feedback we received. Mm-hmm. And thank you to everyone who's a premium listener. Um, yeah. Or you get, first uh, member. You get access to episodes early. You get them ad-free. And uh, we're going to start trying to make some special premium content. And if you're interested in that, you can check out blackboxdownpod.com. Uh, it's two ninety nine a month. You can listen to the podcast in whatever platform you are to listen to it. Okay. Anyway, thank you for that reminder, Chris. Uh, so this overall operation was called Operation Baby Lift. This particular incident was the first flight of Operation Baby Lift. It's referred to as the 1975 Tan Sun Nut C5 accident. Like I said, it was the first flight for Operation Baby Lift. And, you know, back in March and April of 1975, as the North Vietnamese forces closed in on Saigon, Americans started to worry about Vietnamese orphans that were in danger from the war. Mm-hmm. And South Vietnam actually formally requested that the U.S. immediately move 2,000 orphans from Saigon to the United States or other friendly countries. And, okay. you know, President Gerald Ford ordered the evacuation. The first flight occurred, which is this one, on April 4th, 1975, from the Tan Son Nut Air Base near Saigon, Vietnam, bound for Clark Air Base in the Philippines. They were just going to go from Vietnam to the Philippines, and then from there, they would disperse to the different countries that I mentioned before. The flight was crewed by Captain Dennis Bud Trainer. Co-pilot was Captain Tilford Harp, and the flight engineer was Master Sergeant Alan Engels, with 26 other crew members on board. I'm just thinking about a, an entire plane full of babies. Right, and this is a big plane. This is a big cargo plane. It's a Lockheed C-5 Galaxy, and they stripped out you know, as much as they could and loaded it with about 250 orphans and Americans. And notice I said about 250 orphans. There really yeah. weren't records, like reliable records yeah. kept. It's difficult to get an accurate number because some people were on board, were not on the manifest. Some people who were on the manifest were not on board. Mm. So the agreed on number is 285 passengers, total of 314 people on board. And remember, this is like a cargo plane. So normally they move tanks, helicopters, equipment, gear in it. So it's got like a seating area for troops up at the top. And then the bottom is just like a big cargo plane so they had people you know seated in the seats up top and then they had people just sitting on the floor in the cargo space below as well Mm -hmm. again makes it difficult to know how many people were on board because they didn't necessarily have seats so this flight took off at about 4 15 p.m saigon time so much of the info we're going to talk about here comes directly from captain trainer so spoiler captain trainer does survive he he wrote his account of what happened in a story called 12 minutes out So about 12 minutes after takeoff, the plane had reached an altitude of 23,000 feet. And there was a sudden explosive decompression that blew out the rear ramp and cargo door, severing the flight control cables to the tail and two of the four hydraulic systems at the aft bulkhead. So, you know, we've talked about this explosive decompression before. Mm -hmm. The, The cargo door just blew out, caused damage, you know, ripped a bunch of cables and hydraulic systems out. So two hydraulic systems are out and the flight control cables get ripped out as well. Some of the crew members who were stationed near the ramp were sucked out of the plane as well. Debris started flying around the open compartment and the cockpit filled with condensation. You know, it's like because of the pressure differential and humidity, Uh it's like a cloud forms inside the plane. That's that's right away. Wild. Imagine like it being foggy inside of a plane like that. Mm -hmm. So immediately both pilots put on their oxygen masks Uh and Captain Trainer started a slow 180 degree turn back towards uh, Tansan Nut. And uh, remember, like I said, a bunch of people were sitting. Oh, well, let me let me let me deal with this in two phases. Okay. You know, the pe- there were people in the troop compartment, which has seats and it's uh-huh. designed for people to move. I assume seatbelts. Yes, but they they're packed with babies. Like uh-huh. it's not like a person sitting in a seat. They put like four babies uh-huh. in three seats. But 
when the oxygen masks fall, babies can't put it on themselves. <laughs> and also they're so low in the seat, the oxygen oh, mask no. doesn't reach them uh, and it doesn't fit on them correctly. Uh, the people who are down below in the cargo hold, there are no oxygen masks down there. No, there's just the, the portable ones that the crew has. So immediately, even though, you know, oxygen masks fall, it's not an ideal situation here at all. Yeah. And of course there were uh, like adult caretakers to take care of the babies. I don't remember how many, I think it was one adult per four babies, if I remember right, somewhere around there. That's a, a lot. But yeah, it, but you know, it, it was going to be a relatively short flight from mm-hmm. Saigon to the Philippines. Okay. So anyway, uh, they start this 180 degree turn back towards the airbase. And during the turn, a crew member who was in the troop compartment checked in and said that they were looking straight down into the sea. Some of the other crew members were struggling to administer oxygen to children, like I said, who were too short to reach the masks. And just to emphasize, like the crew member saying, you know, they're in the plane and looking straight down into the ocean. Like the pla- part of the plane is missing. Okay. The floor is gone. I- Okay, that's what you... Okay, I didn't... I was trying to... You mean like they looked out the cockpit window and were looking like... No, like they were looking down and the floor was gone. They were looking straight into the sea. That's terrifying. (laughs) The crew member also reported that all flight controls were stringing out behind the plane. You know, like all the bundles of wires and everything. The cargo compartment then reported that there was no panic and no one seemed to be having any trouble. But people got... People were pulled out of the plane, right? Yeah, some, yeah, some so, people were. But I guess everyone was just focusing on the babies. Maybe, or they were in shock over what uh-huh. was happening. But yeah, it seemed like for the most part, at this point initially, everyone was maybe just like trying to assess the situation. And to the flight crew, the controls still felt like they were working because the artificial fuel was still being powered by one of the remaining hydraulic systems. But they soon realized they had limited roll control and no control or trim capabilities on any of the tail surfaces. So they had limited control initially, but... Hydraulic fluid, you know, drained out of two of the systems very quickly Mm. and they lost that, you know, bit of control. Did they make the turn though in time? So what they had, if I remember right before, and we're going to, I think we're going to talk about it here in just a bit. I think what they had was one aileron, (laughs) which is uh, like a part on the wing that either flaps up or down to help in banking. Uh And I want to say, I think that was it. That's it? That's all they had as far as controls? Yeah. So they do, they do manage to make the turn. Remember, initially they did have That's some what I was wondering. Yeah. It's like at least they made, they didn't keep going into the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So they did, you know, they did manage to make the turn and they leveled out. The airspeed increased through 300 knots and the nose, which was pointed down, started to slowly rise. Captain Trainer wanted to raise the nose faster, so he increased power into the dive, exceeding 350 knots and the nose rose quickly. We've talked about this before in previous uh, episodes, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm sure you remember this uh, this process called like a fugoid cycle. Where oh, yeah. When you don't have elevator control and you can't, you know, your controls don't allow you to pitch up or down, you control your pitch by increasing or decreasing your speed. The faster you go, the more air goes over your wings, the more lift you get, so you climb. Then you slow down, less lift, and you nose down. <laughs> so instead of, you know, pulling on your controls, back or pushing forward, you control your pitch with the throttle. So Captain Trainer very quickly realized what was going on and was able to, you know, take control by, you know, it's counterintuitive. You're nose down and you want to climb. So what do you do? You increase your power. Uh, <laughs> but he does do it because, I mean, some of the past ones you talk about, it becomes like a roller coaster that comes up, becomes out of control, right? Right. So it's, a, it's you have to manage. You have to very, very quickly learn, you know, where where should your power be to try to be level? Where should it be to climb? Where should it be to descend? So, yeah, it's it's not, you know, this isn't how you're supposed to control your pitch. So you have to be very, you know, very delicate with it. So then he began to try to control the pitch of the airplane 
using bank. Remember I said they had one aileron. Mm-hmm. So when he would, you know, be pitched up, he would start, uh, you know, what limited bank ability he had, which would reduce the lift on one wing, increase it on the other, and try to kind of like oh. make them level out by, you know, just reducing the lift on, on the one wing he could. It helped him kind of get a feel to level out the plane a little bit. So he did manage to level out the plane at 13,000 feet. Man, he, he, so far he's doing a pretty good job, it sounds like. Yeah, uh, I mean, we've talked about this in other incidents, and, you know, m- quite often the crew doesn't know what to do, and they can't wrap their head around the problem. But, you know, this pilot very quickly figured out what was going on and worked with what he had to try to control the plane. And like I said, they leveled off at 13,000 feet. And, he, you know, he knew he's like, okay, well, we got to try to control this descent as much as we can, you know, get back to the airbase. Yeah. A crew member who was sitting in a jump seat in the cockpit radioed the ground and he became frustrated because the controller on the ground didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> and the crew member eventually said, would you shut up and listen? We're going to crash land opposite direction of traffic, clear the runway. <laughs> oh, man. So when they approached 10,000 feet, they lowered the main landing gear without experiencing any change in pitch and then uh-huh. lowered the nose gear using the emergency extension. And we've talked about this before in other incidents. You know, extending your flaps or lowering your gear changes the, the airflow over the plane and can very quickly upset your flight. You know, it can very mm-hmm. quickly lead to going out of control. But, you know, they lowered their gear and it actually went down, didn't disrupt how they were flying. The nose gear got lowered by emergency extension. So like, does that mean like a hand crank type thing? So the, I don't know specifically about the C5, uh-huh. but in some planes they'll have what they call like, so normally it would be like the hydraulics, which lower the gear. If the hydraulics aren't working or if there's a malfunction in that system, they can be uh, lowered, what they call like a gravity lower, where mm. basically you release it from its retracted position and then it falls down with gravity and then locks into position. Oh, It doesn't always work. Mm. But, you know, in this case, it did. Because even though it lowers with gravity, it may not fully click. lower yeah, or, I mean, yeah, click into the locked position. So you almost have to like let it drop hard, right? Right, exactly. So by this time when they lower the gear, they're at about 7,500 feet and they had Saigon in sight. The crew established a visual long left base and uh, planned to hit the runway with max brakes and spoilers with full flaps. So when they're in left base, that's essentially like flying perpendicular to the runway before you make your turn to line up and come in to land on the runway. Uh-huh. But they can't turn, right? Right. But, I mean, they're going to have to do the best they can. Yeah. And, I mean, they're, tr- they're trying to hit, you know, get to, to land on that runway. And, you know, and also, like I said... They're landing opposite direction of traffic, which means they're landing with a tailwind, which even under best case scenario, that makes your landing roll much, much longer. Mm. Normally, a plane wants to land nose into the wind to help, you know, have as slow speed as possible. But when the wind is coming from behind them, it's going to push them. And like I said, even under best case scenario, everything going well, that means you're going to go a lot further down that runway, Mm. which is why they're, they're planning to do max brakes, full flaps, like they need to try to stop as quickly as possible when they touch down. So Captain Trainer focused on the power to keep the right pitch while the other pilot flew using only the right aileron for bank because it was the only one they had. Like I said, they only had that one <laughs> aileron. Yeah. So, you know, the captain's like, here, I'm going to do the power to pitch us. You, you move us, you roll us to the right because uh, that's all we have or left or right, depending on where they're going. Uh, so normally when you roll with your ailerons, like mm-hmm. let's say you, you want to roll to the right. If you roll to the right, your right aileron kind of deflects up and your left aileron deflects down Uh then if you want to roll to the left your left aileron deflects up and your right aileron deflects down so they only had the one on the right so it could either go up or down so it's like doing half the job 
Yeah. That doesn't mean they could only turn right. It means that only the right one was going up or down. But they they can use that to like turn to steer sort of. Yeah. And yeah. also keep the plane level. Yeah. Uh, okay. From a roll perspective, not necessarily from a pitch perspective. Yeah. But they did. They were actually kind of cheating it and using the aileron to help them maintain pitch a bit. But it's that's it's very complicated. I'm trying to explain it as best I can. It, could you do it by like slightly keeping it unlevel? Is that what you do? So it yeah. like gets hits more wind. Right. Well, what that does is it it creates asymmetric lift where one wing uh-huh. gets a little more lift than the other, and that's what they were probably trying to do. Like going back and forth between them slightly. <laughs> Maybe not back and forth necessarily, but maybe just, you know, flying with one wing slightly up or one wing slightly down uh-huh. in order to try to level things off, you know, to try to get like fine tuning. So, like I said, they were on a left base, which means they were perpendicular. And, you know, like we talked about, they had to make that turn for final to line up to the runway. So they began that turn for final. And that's when they began having trouble keeping the nose up and controlling the bank angle. Because remember, all of this is very delicate. You know, this is not how, how you're supposed to fly a plane, obviously. Mm-hmm. So they leveled the wings as they were passing through 1,500 feet and pushed the throttles fully forward, trying to get some control of the pitch back because they're, they're too low now. When they reached 500 feet, they realized they were going to crash. They weren't going to make it back to the runway. Uh-huh. So they pulled the throttles back to idle you know, in an effort to try to slow down to reduce the strength of the impact when they hit the ground. They crashed into a marsh at a speed of 269 knots, about two miles short of the runway. So they were close. I mean, that's so close to getting back to the runway yeah and they skidded for about a thousand feet then they became airborne again they kind of bounced back up flew for another 2700 feet before impacting the ground again the second impact broke the aircraft apart and crushed the cargo compartment where you know many of the orphans were kept smoke from the crash was visible from the airbase and rescue parties were quickly organized the plane was impossible to reach by car so helicopters ferried out rescued personnel and brought back bodies and recovering the remains took several days. And grand total, all told, 138 people were killed in the crash, 78 of which were children. So, you know, a lot of people passed away, but a lot of people also survived it, you know, yeah, which is, which, it, it's an awful incident that they went through. And it's it's amazing to me that anyone survived it. it oh, I it's, know. It, it's so bad. I and mean, we've covered enough of these to where the problem that you're describing of like the scenario, it's like, Oh, I'm I'm surprised they landed. Yeah, like when you told me the the, the captain lived, I was like, oh, yeah, a little little spoiler. Yeah, all told, there were 176 survivors. So more than more than half the people survived. But I think I think the vast majority of people who were killed were in that cargo compartment on the bottom of the plane. Mm. You know, again, no seats, no seat belts. The force of the impact, you know, is greatest right down there because mm-hmm. it's on the bottom. So when the plane, you know, finally came to a stop, Captain Trainer opened his window in the cockpit and climbed out. And when he looked back to the wreckage, he found the flight deck was inverted and the wings were on fire. The plane had actually separated into several components as it impacted the ground that second time. I think the tail was sheared off, the wings were sheared off, the cargo and troop compartment were in a different piece, and the the cockpit was also separated. Do you think it landed, like, the plane landing was was softer because they hit the ground and then went back up and kind of, like, slowed down? It's possible. It Also, they hit a marsh. So uh-huh. it's like a, a soft, wet ground, which also helps uh, absorb some of that impact. Yeah. So, I mean, that definitely helped. But yeah, uh, you know, that first bounce probably did slow down their speed and, you know, removed some energy from the plane. But yeah, it's it still was a lot. You know, it still yeah. was a crash landing. Yeah. 
So, you know, Captain Trainer started to help clear the flight deck of bodies. And in the troop compartment, he actually found a crew member who was alive sitting on the floor. So the troop compartment didn't have any windows. And this person thought they had just had a hard landing and veered off the runway <laughs> and came to a what? stop. Yeah, I mean, they, they couldn't see. You know, they were just like bunkered down between some seats. They couldn't see outside. They had no idea how bad they had just crashed. They didn't even know anything was wrong with the plane. Well, they knew something was wrong, but they had just assumed that they had hit the runway hard and, you know, and been veered off the runway onto the grass. Oh, my God. So after most of the bodies and survivors were evacuated, Captain Trainer also left the scene to answer questions and get cleaned up. Immediately after the crash, Wisconsin Senator William Proxmire demanded that the Air Force ground all C-5s until a complete investigation proved its integrity. Proxmire questioned the decision to use the aircraft to evacuate the Vietnamese children, quote, in view of the many deficiencies of the C-5A, the numerous accidents and mishaps in which it has been involved, and the fact it was not designed as a passenger plane, and that such use entails significant risks, end quote. He went on to say that questions have been raised by many as to whether it was decided to use the C-5 in part as a dramatic demonstration of its usefulness in an emergency, just so as to underscore the importance of getting additional funds for the aircraft. So, you know, the senator says, why were we using this plane? You know, it's not designed... <laughs> as a passenger plane, like, was this just a stunt to try to show that the C-5 was a useful plane and that the program should get more money to build more C-5s? Really? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what he's saying, because I, I, the, the C-5A that they're using here was produced between 1968 and 1973. So at this point, you know, they hadn't been producing it for a while. So in his view, he wanted to ask, was this a stunt to try to get more money to build more of these planes? Or was it because that's just what was available Right. Time. Yeah. Would it have been better to charter planes or to find a plane that was specifically designed to carry people? You know, what was the motivation in using this specific class of plane? Well, I, it doesn't seem like evacuating babies is like a, well, we could use that all over. You know, that seems very specific. <laughs> so I don't know, but I guess it is a stunt. If, if yeah. it was a stunt, then that would be a, a news newsworthy one right like look how useful this plane is we were yeah. able to carry out tons of people but that's not what it's supposed to be used for yeah. anyway just questions immediately were erased using the internet without express vpn is like checking in your baggage at the airport without a lock you know you think your stuff is kept private but you never know who's going through your stuff whatever you've got hidden in there you know uh, we all put stuff that we'd rather keep private in there someone's probably going through it right when you go online without a VPN, internet service providers can see every single website you visit. They can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. Well, when you use ExpressVPN, ISPs cannot see your online activity. Your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. Your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. On top of that, it's easy to use. Fire up the app. Just click one button. Works everywhere. Phones, laptops, routers. So everyone on your Wi-Fi can be protected. I'm a big privacy person. I think it's great to use a VPN, an ExpressVPN. It's top, top of the class, head and shoulders above everything else, if you ask me. So secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash blackboxdown. You get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. From cringing at the pump to getting an eye-popping check at your favorite restaurant, inflation is hitting us all where it hurts, and it really hurts. That's why I think you should be using Upside App. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. With every purchase, you can earn cash back thanks to Upside. So to get started, just download the free Upside app, use promo code BLACKBOX, get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Once you have the app, all you have to do is claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. 
you check in at the business, pay as usual with a credit or debit card, and you get paid. It's easy. In comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week. That's probably why they have a 4.8 star rating on the App Store. So download the free Upside app. Use promo code BLACKBOX to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code BLACKBOX. Summertime always makes me think about being a kid, riding my bike around the neighborhood, hanging out with friends. Uh, Now that I'm a little older uh, and a little more out of shape, riding a bike always seems like it would be a little more than I'm willing to bite off uh, in my day-to-day life. However, thankfully, there are e-bikes now, which make it much easier (laughs) for someone like me especially uh, to get around and still get up on a bicycle and ride around. Finally, there's an e-bike made for everyone, electric e-bikes. They start at just $799. They're the fastest growing e-bike company in the US. It's easy to see why. Electric e-bikes are affordable, customizable. They ship free, fully assembled, plus they quickly fold in half. No bike rack or truck required. Leave the car at home, save on gas, save the planet when you explore and commute on electric e-bikes. It's super fun to ride. Um, finding any excuse I can to ride uh, my electric bike around, whether it's to grocery stores nearby, restaurants to pick up food, coffee shops, you name it. I'm like, oh, I've I got something to do. Better hop on the bike and uh, and ride it. And the thing I found, honestly, for some places, it's faster to get there on my bike than you know getting in my car, worrying about parking. Like any place, most places just have a bike rack right up front. You just wheel right up to the door, lock your bike down, walk in, you're done. You don't have to circle around a parking lot, following people, looking for a place to park. It's like I said, sometimes it's faster for me to just take my bike uh, than to go get in my stupid car. So electric e-bikes mission is simple. It's to make e-bikes accessible for everyone. They're surprisingly affordable starting at $799. It's way less than competition. They're adjustable, customizable, so they're really comfortable even for people who don't normally ride bikes. I'm a really tall, awkward dude. I fit on them and can ride it just fine. You can cover up to 45 miles at up to 28 miles per hour on just a four to six hour charge. That's far and fast. So where will your e-bike adventures take you? Go to electricebikes.com. Get $100 off any e-bike purchase. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-E-S.com. You know, we don't typically cover military incidents. And obviously this is an Air Force aircraft Mm -hmm. in you know, evacuating out of Vietnam. So, spoiler, the NTSB does not do this investigation. (laughs) This uh, investigation was handled by the Military Airlift Command. So, you know, anything we talk about the investigation is taken from their report uh, regarding Operation Babylift. So if you hear me say MAC or MAC, that's Military Air Command. They're the people doing this investigation. So the investigation was led by Major General Warner E. Newby, who was the Military Airlift Command's Chief of Staff for Logistics. And by the time that he made it to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, the in-flight recorder was already recovered from the bottom of the South China Sea. However, the Paris Peace Accords had set limitations on the number of American military personnel in Vietnam, so it restricted the size of the investigation team. Oh. Right, like another weird (laughs) wrinkle you you don't think about. So although the military airlift command leaders were eager to learn the cause of the crash, the military and political climate in Vietnam was deteriorating so rapidly that American officials placed the investigation way down on the list of priorities. Oh, no. Right. So in Saigon, a representative from the defense attache office briefed team members on the local informal accident investigation. Local authorities had succeeded in securing the accident site from the Viet Cong, but not from pilferage. Vietnamese nationals had begun to scavenge through the wreckage immediately after the accident. And when Newby arrived at the crash site, he said there were at least 500 people carrying things out of there. When team members attempted to stop the removal of aircraft parts and pieces, 
the Vietnamese started to fight back to protect their right to take what they wanted from the remains of the aircraft. And they had already carried off many pieces of the aircraft, including avionics and communications equipment from the cockpit. And General Newby's team also learned that although a manifest existed for the adults aboard the flight, there was no accurate accounting of the children. And this goes back to kind of what I Mm -hmm. talked about earlier. Why was there no accurate accounting of the children? Um, This just seems very poorly organized and executed. Mm -hmm. It it just doesn't seem right. In fact, uh, Captain Trainer, I I watched an interview with Captain Trainer. You know, he said that, uh, you know, when he came out of the plane, you know, he, he was helping these people evacuate. You know, he was still in his flight suit and he looked around and saw, you know, someone going through his suitcase. Like someone had oh. come to, to, you know, scavenge through the wreckage. The person who was going through his suitcase was wearing his Air Force jacket. Oh, my God. And he was like, hey, you know, he had to try to convince the person that that was his jacket. You know, he'd like pointed to the name on it and like the name on his flight suit and showed that they were the same. And, you know, the person who was going through his luggage gave him the jacket, but then kept going through his luggage. And you know, Captain Trainer walked away <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So, th- and, I mean, I'm sure that makes the investigation a lot harder, too, whenever they, the plane's been picked apart. Right. You know, normally you want to go through, you know, we've talked about this, you know, grab all the pieces you can, reconstruct the plane. Aside from the, you know, people going through and taking parts of the plane, remember... The war's ending. The North Vietnamese are coming as well. There is a very limited time frame to get what you need and leave. Like, I don't know how familiar... I don't, I, I, like, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the Vietnam War, but I don't know how familiar you are with the, the end of the Vietnam War, Chris. But officially, the Vietnam War ended April 30th, 1975. So officially, the war is going to end 26 days from after this crash. <laughs> so there is not a lot of time to get this investigation, find all the parts, get the investigation done, and leave. Because it's over. It's done. Yeah. They're just, it's just an evacuation at this point. Like Right. So originally, it was thought that the aircraft was brought down by sabotage. So an explosive mm-hmm. ordnance disposal mm-hmm. team was sent to examine the wreckage. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So they sent personnel and an explosive detector dog, and they found no evidence of sabotage, no evidence of explosives. The absence of powder traces and eyewitness reports that there was no flash at the time caused Newby to doubt that explosives had initiated the decompression. Because of the obvious need to recover as many of the relevant aircraft parts as possible before the Vietnamese nationals carried them away, General Mm -hmm. Newby decided his team members needed to devote their initial attention to the crash site. Recovered parts were airlifted back to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Remember, like I said, they don't have a lot of time in Vietnam. So they're recovering parts and taking them back to the Philippines where they photographed cleaned, and reassembled them in a hangar. After four days, General Newby determined that his team had salvaged all the important parts that the scavengers had left behind. After examining the parts, the team acknowledged that it lacked sufficient evidence to determine the cause of the decompression. The lack of parts available to the investigators and concern over missing advanced technology items made it difficult to draw conclusions. So, you know, now they have to figure out, they they have parts, they don't have enough parts and they don't have mm-hmm. the right parts. So did anyone see what, like there were any, I know they're not reliable, but any witnesses or they, they were out over the ocean at the time. So they so were, was, they were far was, enough away. Yeah. Right. There was no one on the ground who saw it, but you know, obviously there were witnesses in the cargo uh-huh. compartment and it was their, their testimony or their interviews that say there was a lack of flash or a lack of, you know, like a fire. Right. Mm. Which makes them uh, try to eliminate explosives. Mm. So, In an effort to try to find more parts, General Newby initiated three programs. First, he asked the United States Navy to use its sophisticated underwater search equipment to look for parts that might have fallen into the ocean after the decompression. Remember, like I said, they were out over the ocean. So he asks the Navy, hey, can you look for stuff 
underwater. He emphasized the importance of trying to find the ramp and the pressure door that had left the airplane out at the decompression site. Newby also asked for $7,000 to purchase the aircraft components that were salvaged from the crash site. Buy back from the people who were... Exactly. Mm. The investigation team prepared handbills depicting aircraft parts critical to the investigation and avionics equipment containing state-of-the-art technology. And they circulated these handbills through the local communities. And they were able to buy back the tape from the maintenance data recorder. And lastly, the team members returned to the crash site and scoured the area again, and they found several more parts, although nothing that materially aided the investigation. On April 19th, the investigators determined they could learn nothing more from the crash site, so they abandoned the wreckage. The next day, technicians shipped recovered C5 components for laboratory analysis. And on April 27th, the Navy salvage operation recovered a 20-foot by 12-foot section of the aft ramp and a 7-foot by 12-foot section of the pressure door. These were quickly airlifted to the logistics center for examination as well. So things are coming together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were able to, you know, initiate this buyback, find some parts that they needed. The Navy was actually able to find parts of the ramp and the pressure door and send them on as well. So despite, you know, it wasn't an ideal site to walk into for an investigation, they are you know, able to start recovering pieces that are going to help them figure out what's, what happened. Yeah, I mean, I'm impressed so far <laughs> that they're getting as much of... Yeah, I, I, uh, it's a... I think offering to purchase the components and producing those handbills, I think that was really smart. You know, yeah, getting on that like, very quickly. Not trying to just take it, just be like, all right, let's just... Right, because then you incentivize people to look for it and then turn mm-hmm. it in. Yeah, and you're not, you're not like, people aren't hiding it because you're trying to take it from them. Right. They're, you're like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just pay for it. Right. So it was discovered that on March 24th, 1975... Maintenance technicians had replaced the tie rod assemblies connecting the numbers 2, 3, and 4 right aft cargo ramp locks. The technical order governing the replacement of tie rod assemblies included no specific rigging, adjusting, or operational checking instructions following the installation. And these, these tie rod assemblies, they are like the parts that push the lock into a locking position. You can think of the lock as like a hook that comes down into a hole and grabs hold of it. The tie rod assembly is like what pushes the hook over and down. So it, it gauges into the hole and locks. Mm-hmm. I guess the the <laughs> the really low budget way is like, think of a bungee cord. You know, it's like stretchy mm-hmm. and it's got like the hook at the end. Like when you attach that bungee cord and you hook it into something so that yeah. it stays, that's like how the lock kind of works, you know? Okay. And the tie rod assembly is what pushes the hook so that it goes and engages into, you know, whatever it locks into. I think it's like, like a box truck. Sort of. What What about a box truck? I don't know, like the way a box truck, the back door locks. Oh, yeah. Very much like that. <laughs> Except that that just kind of like has a handle yeah. that like latches down. But yeah, that's kind of kind of the same thing. That's a, that's a really good analogy. So the technical order procedures did not ensure correct adjustments, measurements, pull forces, or over center positions. It was concluded that some of the right side locks were not carrying their share of the load. Oh. So it was like distributed poorly. Right. And like I said... The uh, number two, three, and four right aft cargo ramp locks had had their assemblies replaced, and these are the ones that were n- they were not carrying their load. They're not carrying their share of the load. So the most probable cause was the failure of the locking mechanisms on the right side of the aft loading ramp. This placed too much stress on the other locks, causing them to fail. The right side of the ramp then broke loose and tore completely across, striking the pressure door and causing decompression. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about incidents like this before, where cargo doors burst open in flight and cause a decompression. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. The pressure door separated from the fuselage, hitting the sloping torque deck area of the fuselage, 
severing the empennage flight control cables and empennage's like tail section mm-hmm. and hydraulic lines to systems one and two, causing the loss of all pitch trim, elevator, and rudder flight controls. So these locks failed, uh-huh. caused the door to open, decompression, and it ripped out a bunch of the cables and hydraulic systems on its way out. Okay, so it ripped them all out on its way out, or did it hit hit the like f- get sucked out and then hit the other parts on its like while flying off the plane? Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess that that's probably a better uh, description. It gets torn out and then hits everything on its way out, and you know breaks rips it all more out. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course, this explains why they had very limited control. This explains why they lost hydraulics. What was going on at the time? Uh, the reason that these tie rod assemblies have been replaced is at the time they were cannibalizing parts. You know, like if this, like if plane one wasn't going to fly for a little while and plane two needed to take off, they'd be like, oh, let's just take these parts and put them in plane two, oh, have it God. take off. And then, you know, they were, oh kind of, they were kind of shuffling parts around to get whatever plane needed to fly at the time uh, up in the air. Oh, that this seems so bad. <laughs> right. And the procedures for this were just inadequate for checking the locks once the process was done. So the Office of Information at Headquarters Military Airlift Command acknowledged in a message to the military airlift wings that although the board was not able to pinpoint the exact cause of a failure, it was able to trace the sequence of events close enough to ensure that subsequent actions will prevent recurrence. Uh, and equally important, the board conclusively determined that there was no structural deficiency involved and that the ramp and pressure door failed only as a result of dynamic overload. And to prevent similar occurrence, two time compliance technical orders were issued to inspect and secure the remainder of the C-5 force. They required a replacement of worn or deficient components and a complete re-rigging of the system in each aircraft. Based upon completion of these orders and the board's determination of the structural soundness of the aircraft, the C-5 returned to normal operation May 5th, 1975. So they, you know, they grounded the planes. Uh-huh. You know, they, they were like, okay... We, we know how to fix this. We know how to inspect it. So let's re-rig the locking in all of the planes. Make sure, you know, take mm-hmm. it all apart, put it all back together, look at it, and make sure it's good. In fact, one of the, one of the things they did as a result of this was um, part of the procedure is now once the, the locks engage and those hooks, you know, are in place, they have little steel pins that they have to put into each mm. lock with like a long little ribbon on it. And if the lock is not properly engaged, those steel pins won't fit in. Yeah, no, I feel like they have those at the moving trucks too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's like you want to, but it's yeah. just, it, it is a little dangerous because then they're like, oh, what if you forget to take the pins out and you try to open the door, then you break it. Mm. But yeah, like now it's like, that's part of it. And in fact, I think before they they took off on this flight where this incident happened, the crew had noticed like it took like three or four attempts to get the door to lock. Like it wasn't quite oh. lining up right. And they were just like, just push it hard. Like when you're Yeah. And then eventually it locked and they secured like, okay, there we go. That was weird. So like they, the system, they, they had given some hints that something was slightly wrong, but you know, nobody knew specifically what or knew that they were supposed to check this. Except for this tragic accident, the military airlift command portion of Operation Babylift proceeded with hardly a flaw. Commercial aircraft chartered by private agencies Disrupted the airflow, however, these actions not only wreaked havoc with the airlift scheduling, but also overloaded support facilities along the route between Saigon and the United States. Because although it was not officially part of Operation Babylift, privately contracted civilian airlines made a significant contribution to the orphan airlift during April and May of 1975. Of the 2,894 orphans that had reached the United States, privately contracted airlines had carried 1,090 of them, But these contributions were not necessarily always seen as positive. Mm. One example of this is on April 2nd, a World Airways flight with 54 Vietnamese children on board 
began to taxi toward the runway at Tan San Nut Airport when suddenly the control tower turned off the lights to the runway and ordered the crew not to take off. What? The controllers revoked the clearance to take off due to the anticipation of a Viet Cong attack, but the World Airways flight continued to taxi and took what? off after reaching the end of the runway. The captain for the flight later said, I just didn't get the message in time. This flight was made with the DC-8, but the president of World Airways, Ed Daly, originally claimed he would make the flight with the Boeing 747 carrying 458 orphans. However, when he made this claim, he didn't have permission from the American embassy or Vietnamese government. An American ambassador then approached an orphanage offering to carry the orphans out with C-5As, which is why World Airways only had 56 orphans on board the flight. The U.S. Embassy then refused to supply this flight with milk, baby food, or diapers. Oh, my God. So Daly supplied them under his own expense and then directed the pilot to ignore the controllers at Tansan Nut and oh head for God. Yokata Air Base in Japan. So you see why I was a little cagey about saying this was a good thing at the top of the episode. This, in some cases, may have been kidnapping. I mean, honestly. This, like they had no permission to take these children. They were just kind of loading them on the planes and oh, taking off. Just like, oh, babies, let's put them on the plane. Oh, right. my God. Like, who are these people to determine the future of these children? Uh, on top of the fact they were given no permission for some. No, of this I know. Stuff. I mean, that's. But do you, I mean, I I assume they thought they were trying. Like they were trying. They thought they were helping. Right. In but, their own head, but not. But not necessarily. Not yeah. But I don't know. Who knows? Maybe they were just trying to do it for like prestige you know like for moral i don't know to go back yes i rescued babies yeah so i said something there that uh that i, I was wondering if you would pick up on it's so like i said this this world airways flight that we just talked about uh -huh. you know, they were told not to take off they didn't have permission the u.s embassy told them not to do this they took off anyway and i said they were heading for yokata air base in japan so the question is if they were not given permission how are they going to land at an air base in japan mm. So military airlift command had not chartered this flight. This plane uh -huh. could not legally land at any military base. Yeah, I guess I just, I, I had, in my head, I was like, didn't realize it was a military. Yeah. So the aircraft approached Yokata Air Base uh -huh. and they had no suitable alternative landing field. So they, the officials at the base were forced to allow this DC-8 to land, but they prohibited any Vietnamese from leaving the airplane. And, you know, all this is going on. In the end, it's the children who are suffering. Two yeah. of the babies suffered from such dehydration oh, and malnutrition no. that doctors admitted them to the Tachikawa Air Base Hospital, the nearest major hospital to Yakata anyway. So after refueling the World Airways jet continued to Oakland, California, and Daly avoided confrontation with the FAA by staying in Japan, and the pilot for this flight was at risk of losing his license. Because he just ignored the air traffic control. Right. Yeah. Eventually, FAA Chief James E. Dow announced that in view of the humanitarian circumstances, the agency would take no punitive action against either the pilot or the airline. However, his contract to fly food into Cambodia was canceled by the Military Airlift Command. Uh, and in response, Daly urged the president to, quote, get the incompetence out of there immediately and appoint someone with the intelligence, competency, and the guts necessary to get the job done, end quote. Oh this just sounds like such a mess. It's a mess, This dude. is like crazy. Yeah, he sent this message to every member of the cabinet, all members of Congress, every state governor, to the oh press. My. So you can see, this is kind of publicity. Yeah. Kind of like, look at me, look at, you know. Uh, I, Wait, I, who I, sent that? Who sent that? Uh, the... Um, the owner of the airline. Oh, the owner of the airline. It, yeah, oh. the, of, of World Airways. The one who just was like forced them, just took off? Right. He told them to take off anyway. Um, 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 so I'm sorry. It's not the, the, the president of World Airways, Ed Daly. Yeah, that just sounds like he... <sighs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a complicated mess. In all honesty, this crash, it's, I mean, it's the most tragic part of it probably, but 
it doesn't seem like it's the worst managed. What do you mean? Like the cleanup of it and like all, all, everything, all that seems like it was almost managed better than the actual operation. Oh, right. Do you know what well, I mean? Like, Well, the reason is that there's procedures for that stuff. There's procedures yeah. for investigations. There's procedures <laughs> yeah. for like all this. Like the, this, the, the Operation Baby Lift was just someone going, hey, let's put babies on a plane and fly them out. <laughs> like, how are we going to do that? How are we going to check to make sure we're not kidnapping anybody? I don't know. Just put babies on a plane. Like, <laughs> it's just so poorly organized. Oh. Anyway, the Accident Investigation Board attributed the survival of any on board to Captain Trainer's unorthodox use of power and his decision to crash land while the aircraft was under some control. Yeah, man, it sounds like he did a really good job. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, he, like I said, I've seen interviews with him, and he talks about how, you know, after this incident or after any incident, he thinks that any pilot, you know, it would keep him up at night, and, you know, they would they would wonder, what could I have done differently? Was there anything I could have done to save more people? And he said, yeah. he definitely thinks about that, but that despite all the years that have gone by, he cannot think of anything that he could have done differently to try to, you know, to save more people. Yeah, that's a that's a funny thing because that's not the first time uh, we've talked about a pilot who survived, who, who, who did, a, I mean, by all means, like did a great job crash landing, but they still have all this guilt yeah. about what they could have done differently or what if they'd done, you know, like. Yeah, I know specifically, the person that comes to mind for me is Dennis Fitch, uh, United Airlines Flight 232, which we talked about. I think he had a lot of guilt after that flight. That was also a flight with a lot of children on it. Which one was that? Just uh, what, what was that content? That was the trijet where the number two engine in the tail, the fan blade exploded and it severed all of their hydraulic lines. It was similar yeah. to this, actually. And they could only mm -hmm. steer by doing asymmetric thrust. And they tried to come in and land in Sioux City and um, they ended up... They came in hard, yeah. yeah. So I know Dennis Fitch, I think, had some... I saw in interviews, he said he had a lot of guilt about it. But again, that was an impossible... That seemed impossible to try to land. I'm amazed that anyone survived that one. Anyway, you yeah. should go listen to that episode if you haven't listened to it. That's, I think, one of the most interesting incidents we've ever covered. Which episode is that, number-wise? Uh, that's episode number 13 that came out August 6th of 2020. It's titled Trying to Land with No Controls. So very similar to this one. Yeah. So tr Captains Trainer and Harp, you know, we're not the only people who, who you know, who shown that day. Once the wreckage came to rest, the flight and medical crews, many of whom were seriously injured, performed countless acts of heroism in carrying surviving orphans to safety. Uh, and among them was flight nurse Lieutenant Regina Own. I'm not sure how to say that. It's A-U-N-E. Mm -hmm. uh, she was seated on the floor of the troop compartment in the aisle near the ladder area, right next to the first row of aft-facing seats, bracing herself at the time of initial impact. The second impact jolted her from her bracing position and propelled her down the entire length of the <gasps> aisle. Oh, my God. She finally came to a stop at the wall separating the troop compartment from the flight deck near the row of seats nearest to the forward section of the troop compartment. As she slid down the aisle, she bumped into row after row of seats, sustaining multiple injuries, including a serious cut to her left elbow, a bone-deep wound in her right leg, and a seriously broken right foot. Bleeding heavily from the cuts in her arm and leg, she made her way to an emergency exit and began helping the crew and surviving medics remove children from the shattered aircraft. 37 medals were awarded to Air Force crew members or their next of kin. I can't wow. imagine that. Like, breaking your right foot, having a cut in your leg that goes down to the bone... And still being like, all right, I'm going to help people get <laughs> yeah. off this plane. Like, it's unbelievable. Yeah. In commemoration of the accident in 2005, World Airways arranged a special flight called Operation Babylift Homeward Bound. And on board this flight were 20 of the former orphans, many of which would be returning to Vietnam for the first time since the accident. Wow. 
the flight left Atlanta, Georgia, June 12, 2005, flew to Oakland, California, and then on to Ho Chi Minh City for a two-day visit. And the guests toured the city and were honored with a special banquet at the Unification Palace. Uh, age? We say it's Operation Baby, right? But were they all infants or were some of them like children? Or I don't know uh, the ages of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, if I'm being honest, I mean, things were so chaotic with yeah. this. I don't know that there's any official count of that. You know what it kind of makes me think of? You know that, do you see that picture or maybe it was, I can't remember if it was a picture or a video, but of um, the U.S. Uh, evacuating um, Afghanistan and it's like that plane that's just packed full of people. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and people clinging to the outside. Yeah, and it, it, it seems almost like that, where it's just well, like chaos. This, you know, this was, like I said, towards the the end of the war, and but it wasn't, you know, the the exact like last couple of days. Yep. What I think of when I when I when I saw those pictures of, mm-hmm. um, you know, the evacuation of evacuation of Afghanistan, what I thought of was you know, like very specifically the fall of Saigon, like the last day or two of mm. um, the U.S. involvement in uh, Vietnam, where it was just like hordes of people crowding helicopters mm. trying to get out. But yeah, it, it, it could, just because like that was people on the outside trying to yeah. get in versus this is just like a bunch of... Uh, Badly you know, managed, like yeah, chaos in, versus in a, that was like... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely awful. But again, you know, people did manage to survive and... Uh, it was it was amazing airmanship on the parts of uh, mm-hmm. of the crew to even get that far. But that's it for this episode of Black Box Down. We're going on a, a you know our short break. We will not have an episode next week, but we'll have some supplemental content the week after. We're gonna we spend a couple of weeks researching new episodes, so uh, we'll be back real soon. Uh, but we will have some supplemental content in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we will you'll hear from us then. And if you want something to listen to next week, whenever we don't have one consider doing the uh premium membership oh yeah uh, oh there's a there's a free trial on that now i don't know if you know that oh. uh chris there is a i believe there's a seven day free trial on apple podcast and spotify so if you listen there you can uh check it out it should be it should be in your podcast app you should see it right there and i oh oh and are, isn't also available for an annual now yeah and i believe there is a discount if you uh subscribe annually as well yeah so thank you and please consider giving a free trial checking out that bonus episode because we'll have more stuff soon and message us on social media or uh at blackboxdownpod at gmail.com and let us know what you'd like to hear in some of that supplemental content all right uh bye everyone bye